Well, as parents who are fully immersed in the teenage years, Callie and I right now are currently finishing up teaching our third child how to drive. And all of our kids, just all of our kids are tremendous drivers, let the record show. Uh, they're attentive, they're responsible, they're alert. Uh, but there is a reason why the cars that they use to teach kids to drive, you know, the ones at the driving schools that they do all their instructive drives on, there's a reason why they all come installed with a dual braking system. You guys have seen that, I'm sure, before. It's a brake installed, not just on the driver's side, but the front passenger's side. And some of you are Googling it now to buy one for your own car, maybe. <laughs> but in those situations, most of the instruction is given verbally, right? That's the best situation, is there are verbal commands given, like, watch out, that's a mailbox. You may not want to... <laughs> So verbal commands can be given, but every so often, right? Every so often in the car when they literally cross the line and they cross into the threshold of peril, the instructor who is there can slam on the brake. Or I've even seen it also at times, they reach over and they grab the wheel and do some course correction. They intervene, right? And in our culture, the idea of intervention isn't the best. In fact, you're like, no one wants to be on that side of intervention. If you have to be intervened in, it's seen as a negative thing. No one's dying. Like, I hope I have an intervention this week. But sometimes the greatest expressions of love and care are done by the one who intervenes. Open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 11. Last week, we began a new series, and in fits and spurts, in, in chapters and sections, we're going to be in this series for the rest of 2023. We're going to do a few other series in between, but we're going to weave this one through this year, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a series that really is an invitation to discover the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, an opportunity to walk in the footsteps of faith opportunity to discover the men and women of the family chosen by God to bring blessing to the world. So we would say we are followers of Jesus, no doubt. Uh, but for us to be followers of Jesus, it also means that we come to discover this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're gonna look at the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Genesis 12 through roughly Genesis 35. And I really think that God's brought us here uh, to speak into this season in the life of our church for our part of the journey, for our new beginning in an ancient way. Because as disciples, as followers of Jesus, what you'll find, I think, as we read through these stories is that so much of their journey mirrors our own. And for us to figure out who God is and for us to figure out who we are and how we live, it really draws from the same rich heritage and tradition that men and women have been trying to walk with God for a long, long time and failing and then finding a God who is still faithful in the midst of it all. 
So last week, I, I know I got us going in Genesis. We're kind of dropping into the middle of a story. I know that. Um, hopefully today we'll get a bit more into the ground level, um, maybe even a bit earlier in the Abram story than you have before. Um, but today I want to introduce you as best I can to a man named Abram. Again, his name changes to Abraham, so I'm referring to the same person, if that's confusing for you. But I also want to introduce to you a God who intervenes. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God who intervenes. So here's the story, Genesis 11, 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So I know what you may be thinking. Quite candidly, this is the part of the Abram story that may seem a little boring. Nothing like a little genealogy to spice up the new year. Uh, And not only is it any genealogy, it's kind of a genealogy that comes at the end of a section of genealogies. Like this, if I'm being honest, like this is the stuff we're like, oh, one, two, skip a few. Let's get on to chapter 12 where we get some action here. But I think to do so is to miss some of the really, really important backstory going on here. I think there's some compelling stuff happening here. So by way of reminder, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures is broken up into Three main categories, three main divisions, Torah, prophets, and writings, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And then the the law is further divided up into five scrolls, five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So we're in the beginning of this, but even then the book of Genesis is made up of a variety of stories, of narratives. But if you read it, Carefully, the authors give us literary clues as to know kind of the sections, oftentimes using repetition to show where the different movements and the sections within the story lie. So this little section, this genealogy, in some ways is a huge hinge in the Genesis story. And forgive me for giving all the backstory, but I think it helps. I gave you a little bit of this last week Leading up to Genesis chapter 12, things on planet Earth have gone from good to bad to worse, right? So Genesis 1, in the beginning, God makes, God creates, the world is created good. This is where the story starts, don't mistake it. The story starts with a good beginning, a good God, a good world, a good creation, Adam and Eve, put in the garden to tend and keep God's good world. It's always where the story starts, with a good world and a very good God. And God speaks blessing over all that he's made, including humanity. Good creation. 
But then Genesis 3, as the story goes along, sin enters the world and things start going off the rails. Adam and Eve, they sin, they choose, they rebel against God. They eat from the tree that they are forbidden to eat from. And from there, we begin to see all sorts of evil and the story unwinds. And we see shame in humanity. We see hiding from God and each other, blaming, finger-pointing, covering, curses, distortion, breaking of relationship along all sorts of different planes. And like I said, it goes from good to bad to worse. Because then Genesis 4 comes along and we find rivalry in the family. We find lies. We find murder. Genesis 6, it spreads throughout. And there's corruption and there's wickedness and there's deceit. Genesis 6, verse 5 says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a mouthful. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wah, wah. Like, that's not good. And so as the story goes on, we see that it causes God even, he says, he causes God to regret making humanity and it grieves his heart. And so we end up with a flood with Noah and his family. In many ways, the flood is judgment, yes, but it's containment. It's God's attempt to contain sin that is just devastating everyone. But then Noah's family even finds a way to muck things up. And so we end up in Genesis 11, where the Tower of Babel is built. And rather than obeying God's call to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, instead they're like, no, I want to stay here. And let's build a tower. Let's build a tower so great that we can make a name for ourselves. And humanity refuses God's call. And it's, again, a story of self-exaltation. So all through this, from Genesis 3 on, we have these problems. In progressive ways, God is questioned. In the garden, the serpent asked, did God really say that? And his character is questioned. His word is questioned. All the way through Genesis 3, 4, 6, 11. Here's the the spiraling storyline of the human way. Human scheming. Let's build a a tower. I know. I'm going to do it myself. Human grasping. Human control. It's all the way through the story. This becomes life on planet Earth. Scheming. Grasping. Controlling. And I just want you to notice, like, this is the world we live in. We are still scheming. We are still grasping. We still, I still really like control. So you have this brilliant light known as Eden, this beautiful scene where there's 
shalom. There's relationship with God and humanity and each other and creation and all is as it ought to be. There's this beautiful light of humans knowing God, walking with God, talking with God, enjoying God, working. Work is not bad, but work is an overflow of relationship with God and authority given from God. And yet this beautiful, brilliant light is now flickering. If you use the analogy of a candle, it's barely flickering to stay lit. So out of Babel, out of the spiraling mess of sin and scheming, we get genealogies. So Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And we get their genealogy here in Genesis chapter 10. Right before we learn about Babel, we're like tracking this family line here, all three of those children. And then we have the Tower of Babel at the beginning of Genesis 11. And then right after that, we pick back up again with the story. It's focused on Shem, one of Noah's sons, and his line. And I'll spare you reading all the hard-to-pronounce names. But here's the movement of the story of Genesis. There's intentionality to this. We're being drawn toward this family. We're being drawn toward this line. Shem fathers so-and-so who fathers so-and-so, and and these generations come all the way down to Terah. So God already intervened in sin in Eden, and he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. He's already intervened in the flood, He's already intervened at Babel and he's scrambled languages. Like, what in the world is God going to do now? Genesis 11, 26. When Terah had been 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now we're back to where we started today. A repetition of family. A repetition of people being born. Another little genealogy. Now we're up to God's great next move. And we discover this God who is willing to intervene. And I would say in this part of the story, he intervenes in three things, three areas that rob us and them of life. First thing, we find a God who is willing to intervene in the futility of our idolatry. You see, when we meet Abram and we meet his siblings and his father, where are they geographically found? Ur. Ur. Yes, Ur of the Chaldeans. Right, Genesis eleven twenty-eight. In the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Anyone know where Ur is? Take you back to your world civilizations class. Where? Iraq? Yeah. I put a little map up here for you. Mesopotamia? The Fertile Crescent? This is giving you flashbacks to school. Here's Ur. Here's Ur of the Chaldeans. Here's Babylon, the Fertile Crescent. And then we get over here to the Promised Land in Egypt down over here. But here's Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur in this time was a according to scholars, I don't know these things, but they say that it was a prospering, bustling metropolis, home of the Sumerian kings. Wealthy trading, manufacturing center, sophistication of that ancient world. Ur was quite the urban scene for that day. 
Joshua, later in the story, later in the book of Joshua 24-2, we are told, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. You see, at the center of Ur, at the center of the city, was a large temple, a ziggurat. I remember studying that in middle school too, ziggurats. And in Ur, they worshipped the pagan moon god, Nana. And we could talk more about her and that temple and its worship. But again, I just want you to notice the movement of the story here. We've come a long way from Eden. Come a long way from Adam and Eve. Come a long way from Seth and his family in Genesis 4, who are told that they call on God. And we've got sin and murder and intent on evil continually and a flood and Babel. And now Terah and his family and his sons are living in Ur and they're worshiping the moon god. This is the content of the Abram story. I just want you to notice, this is the story of a God who doesn't give up. This is the story of a God who doesn't give in. This is the story of a God who intervenes in the futility of idolatry. And here you have this family in Ur, worshiping the moon God. And God pursues in the midst of their idols. What's an idol? Here's my shorthand definition. An idol is anything that becomes ultimate other than God. You see, when life falls apart, we try to make sense of it, and we search and we scheme and we grasp for answers and try to find solutions, and ever since our exit from Eden, humans do that. We are worshiping creatures. We're seeking, and we give love and affection and allegiance to some other things to try and get that back in return. And I'm just here to tell you, we may look down our 2023 noses at the Urites of the Chaldeans and say, how dare you go to a ziggurat and worship a moon god? We have our idols too. We're no different than Abram's family. And we need an intervention, too, from the futility of our idolatry. And we've walked away from the God who made us, looking for help from other sources. And God intervenes in places like Ur of the Chaldees. And we may not worship our own moon god, but we are quick to bow at the altar of materialism secular humanism, oblivion, just a desire to numb out and not have to think about anything. But the Abram story is just getting going. So back to this text, back to this little genealogy, back to Genesis 11. There's something else that's striking here, tucked away in these lines. So we're given this other toledoth, uh, generations of section. You'll notice that throughout Genesis, like the generations of this and that. And so we learn about Terah and we chart it out. We hear about Abram and Nahor and Haran. A few other details. We're told that Haran dies in Ur. Abram and Nahor take wives. We meet people like Sarai and Milcah and Yiska and on down the line. Again, you're like, oh, what does this matter? It feels like we're reading a phone book, recipes. 
But this little section of genealogy is interesting and different because you have to realize that in ancient genealogies, typically all you find in the genealogies are men. Because this is a patriarchal society, and we'll talk more about the father's house and what that means as Abram eventually gets called away from it. But in these genealogies, typically you find men named. And I'll just give you an example of this. I think I put this up here. Uh, that's the section I want. Thank you. Genesis 11, verse 10. So, like, this is the gen- generations of Shem, and we find that Shem fathers. Arpachshad, right? And then, and then the daughters are mentioned here. That you had other sons and daughters. But they're focusing on this person fathered so-and-so who fathers so-and-so who fathers, right? And then there's other sons and daughters. Typically in the genealogies, you find the father who fathers a son and that son who fathers somebody else. And the sons and daughters sometimes get mentioned, but usually the women don't show up. But then we come to this little section here about this story. And there's a lot of women who are mentioned, Look again, verses 27 through 32. Sarai, Milka, Yiska. Have you ever paid attention to where Abram came from, his family dynamic here? Go ahead and put, I think I put a little chart up here. Yeah. So Terah fathers Abram and Nahor and Haran. Most assume that we're given this information in age order, so most assume that Abram was the oldest in his family. Why would that be important? Yeah, he's the firstborn. The way the patriarchal household works is the, the firstborn is the one through whom the inheritance is passed in the family. The large household survives and thrives is through the firstborn. So we have Abram and Nahor and Haran. We're told in the passage that Haran dies, but we're told that before he dies, he has kids. Lot, Milka, we find out Yiska. But then we're told also something unique about this family is that Haran dies. He dies before his father dies. That's rare in that day. Usually you bury your kids. Your kids don't bury you. But Haran dies. And so there's a different kind of storyline that's happening here. Haran has kids. He dies. And then we're told that Nahor marries one. Who does Nahor marry? Milka? Who's that? Yeah, that's his brother's daughter. It's interesting. Now, I'll spare you some of the rabbinical traditions, but others assume, actually because of her name here and its kind of linguistic root, that Yiska may actually may be this, a different name for Sarai as well. It's interesting, in this story, you expect the firstborn to have kids first, but he doesn't. Haran does, he dies, and then there's the decision made for Nahor to marry Milcah, and possibly even for Abram to marry Yiska, who is Sarai. Now again, you get lost in the details of all of this. But here's the hope. <laughs> We're looking through this story of problem and pain, of spiraling from good to bad to worse. And now we're looking at this family. We're being reintroduced to this family. And now we're looking to Abram to be the one maybe who this line gets carried on. But who does Abram marry? 
Sarai. And the text is very clear as we first meet Sarai. What's her condition? She's barren. So for Sarai to be taken by Abram, it actually says something about his character. Many presume that he would have known that she was barren, actually. Women were given in marriage at the age of their first menstruation. And so if it's possible that he would have known that she was barren, and yet he chooses to marry her, Maybe there's something very noble happening in this family as they choose to marry their brothers, daughters, as a way of taking care of them, providing for them. But we're searching for a glimmer of hope among this wreck of family lines that are ever spiraling out of control, and there's ever hope for this thing to move forward. Now we find another barrier to the storyline, and that's barrenness. And we're like, the firstborn Abram, the one through whom this family should be moving forward, now he marries someone who is barren. She can't have kids. This is more darkness in the story. I love this Walter Brueggemann quote. He says, the barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. And this text tells us there is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. It's over. And then God speaks, and there's hope again. It's like watching a movie, cheering for the hero. We're like, this is really a bad movie. Bad things are happening. Maybe with this line. Ooh, Tara. Ooh, Abram. Abram marries Sarai. Noble. But this isn't going to end well. Dead end. He marries the barren one. And yet, as we'll see next week, not to get ahead of ourselves, God chooses Abram, the one who married the barren one, and he gives a promise to him and to Sarai that through him there'll be a great name and a great nation and a land and a blessing for all the families on earth. How will that happen to the barren one? It seems hopeless unless God intervenes. So this God not only intervenes in the futility of idolatry in the land of Ur, but now we have a God who intervenes in the hopelessness of barrenness. Man, I hope this speaks to your life. Because I know there are some in our church community who literally struggle with barrenness. This is not just an ancient issue. There are many in our church who have struggled with fertility and still do. Challenge is getting pregnant. And while the cultural narratives and forces are different few millennia later, barrenness still strikes a deep chord of pain someone who wants to have a child but can't. It feels hopeless, devastating. And for others, barrenness shows up in different forms, and maybe it's not just about children. 
but a barrenness of relationship, a barrenness in marriage, a barrenness in your career, a barrenness from the past that leaves you feeling alone and cold by yourself in the dark. Maybe it's the hopelessness and barrenness of sin or shame or abuse or addiction that feels like there's no good that can possibly come from our life and story. Maybe you've had that feeling, that pit in your stomach, thinking God's left me. God has left the building. Nothing good can come from this story anymore. And so we conclude, well, all I have left is scheming, grasping, and control. Do you know that God has a soft spot for the barren ones? Do you know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob intervenes in the hopelessness of our barrenness? He's not done. It's not over. And there are promises. What is God like? This is what's God. This is what God's like. He actually intervenes. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2, the but God section of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God, don't forget the but God. Barrenness says you're dead. Barrenness says you have no hope. Barrenness says that it's over. It's not over yet. But God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, loves to intervene. One more thing and then I'll be done. You see, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, we're told in one of the sermons of Stephen that God called Abram when he was in the land of Mesopotamia. This is Acts 7, verse 2. Stephen says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, fertile crescent, Ur, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And on from there. So in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, we're told that God shows up to Abram while he's still in Mesopotamia, while he's still in Ur, before he gets to Haran. But then you come to Genesis 11, it reads a little different. Genesis eleven thirty-one, 31, it says, 
right? Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his sons, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. And God hasn't called them yet, because that's chapter 12, we haven't gotten to that part of the story. So here we find the whole family, they leave Ur together, they travel together, they come to this place called Haran, ironically named after Abram's brother who died, maybe? As you piece maybe the story together from Stephen's sermon from Genesis chapter 11, maybe God did call Abram back in Ur, as Stephen says in Acts 7. And they leave together, which is culturally appropriate and expected, and they make the trip, and they start the journey, and they get so far, they travel across the Fertile Crescent all the way down to Haran, and we're told in the text here that when they come to Haran, they settled there. Now, this idea of settling has two meanings. One, to settle is just to put down your tents and to make it home. We are settling into our building, and that's true. That's one sense of settle, is you just kind of make it home. But the other sense of settling, it's the act of giving up the bigger vision. It's the act of selling it short, selling the bigger dream short for just something that will do. I'll settle. And now we're talking to the parts of our story that we don't like being talked to. In this story, they leave the land of Ur, but they settle in Haran. Sure, God maybe said Canaan, but this place is good enough. Haran it is. So in the land of Ur, there's idols. In their marriage family line, there's barrenness. And they finally all kind of come together in Haran and they settle. It seemed good enough. It just seemed good enough. You ever tasted that in your story? When does settling get in the way? When does good enough rob us from God's greater more? When do nostalgic people and places feel like a better option than the destination and the destiny of God. One of the ways that we scheme and grasp and control is by settling short of what God said. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob intervenes yet again. He intervenes in their world of idolatry, the futility of their idolatry. He intervenes in the midst of their hopeless barrenness. But he also intervenes in the incompleteness of settling because he knows that that place isn't the place of blessing. So here's what Genesis keeps putting in front of us, keeps putting in front of me. Like, do you actually trust God? Do you trust him? Do you trust his word? Do you trust his character? Do you trust his plan? Do you trust his timing? Do you trust his ways? Do you trust his call? Do you trust his power? 
And today, again, I invite you to know the God who intervenes. Because when the promised land is the goal, Haran is not good enough. Only God's best is good. So maybe this is the question that we can ask for this week. Where do you need God to intervene in your life and story? I still believe that God is in the business of intervening today. Where do you need God to intervene in your story? Because again, after all, this is the way of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who comes through this family line of promise. Jesus is the one who comes from the ones who worshipped idols. From the one who worshipped idols comes the one who is the image of the invisible God. The one who makes God known. And from the ones who were barren comes Jesus, the fullness of life. And from the ones who initially settled a little bit short comes the one Jesus who went all the way fully obeying his father, traveling from heaven to earth to restore and redeem this mess of sin that's been spiraling out of control. He is an intervening God. And he still wants to intervene in you. And maybe it's idols. Maybe there's some things that have captured your mind and hearts, trust and allegiance more than God. Sometimes our idols are even good things that become ultimate things. Maybe it's in our settling. Maybe it's in our barrenness. He is still intervening today. In fact, our hope is that he still intervenes today. We don't want him to stop intervening. In fact, one of the worst things that could ever happen to us is when God says, okay, fine. Have, have it your way. When God goes Burger King on us and says, go ahead, your way. Whatever you want. It's one of the worst places we can be. And maybe the most loving thing he could do this morning is he's intervening into the midst of your life and your story, speaking words of hope to your hopelessness and speaking words of challenge to your idolatry where you're settling. And to his intervening work, would you say yes? Would you say the yes of faith? The yes of confession? The yes of repentance? The yes of surrender to him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for these stories, even little genealogies that set us up to discover your intervening work. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that we could be still enough today to hear your voice, the voice of your Holy Spirit, that you would be the great disruptor where there needs to be disruption, where there needs to be confession and repentance, and may you be the great comforter where we need words of hope and life, and we've begun to feel like there is no more hope. So, Lord, would you know who needs what in that? Holy Spirit, would you know who needs what in that? And would you intervene again? As you intervene for them, Lord, do it again. Do it again and do it again and again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.